dismissed and they're out of here. Annalise, would you put this in? Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> I hope you'll stay for lunch. We're going to have a great time having lunch together uh, after uh, the sermon this morning, after ministry time. It's going to be uh, it's going to be fun, so stay around. We're in a series on 1 John, and the key to this book, to me, has to do with the theme of fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. That John's primary concern is that we don't just think of Christianity as a set of rules or regulations or a religion, but instead it has to do fellowship with God. And we've looked at a bunch of themes, and one of the interesting things about 1 John is it seems to get, for a short book, it seems to get repetitive. He seems to start saying the same things over and over again, and you start to wonder, why does he keep repeating himself? Well, he wants us, he wants his readers, to really grab hold of the truth that life is found in God, that there are copies out there, but that truth itself in God's Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus is both true God and real life, And as children, he wants us to be on guard against other facsimiles, other copies. So he starts to repeat himself, but he does it with kind of what looks like small distinctions, but they're very, very, very important. John is a pursuer of the truth. He's a pursuer of those who are children of God. In the third century, fourth century, early 300s, there was a Christian historian by the name of Eusebes. Eusebes writes a story about John's later days. So this is some hundred years plus after John has passed away. But Eusebes tells the story of how John, as an old man, had won a younger man to Christ. And then John had to leave the town. He had begun the discipling process of this younger man then he had to leave the city where the young man was. So he, he turned over the care and discipling of this young man to a bishop in the town. As a matter of fact, he gave the guy to the bishop and said, I'm going to return and I want to return on my investment. Meaning I want you to continue to uh, really pour your life into this young man. When he gets back, When he gets back from his journey, which had been a while, uh, John goes to the bishop of the town and says, where's that young man I left in your care? And the bishop says, alas, he's dead. John says, what do you mean? Then according to Eusebes, the bishop said, well, he's dead to God. In other words, the young man had fallen back into uh, a lifestyle of following the world. As a matter of fact, he'd gone back to a life of crime, and he now lived as a leader of a band of robbers in the mountains outside of this city, and now no one would actually go into the mountains because they were fearful of this band of robbers. According to Eusebes, at that point, John rips his cloak, he yells out to the Lord, 
and then he asks for them to bring him a horse. And John, as an old man, gets on the horse and rides up into the mountains where no one else would go. And as you can imagine, he is then uh, confronted by this band of robbers who uh, threaten him to kill him. And John says, um, I, I want to be captured. Take me to those who are in charge. Take me before your judgment seat. So they bring this old man to the leaders of this gang of robbers. And one of the leaders, of course, is the young man that John so many years ago had won to the Lord, who immediately recognizes John. And this is what Eusebius says. He says, at that point, this young man, though armed, stands up and starts to run away. He took off. John, the old man, starts running after him and cries out, Why flee from me? I'm an old, unarmed man. Don't you see that there's still hope of life for you? I'll gladly suffer death for you as the Lord suffered death for me. I'll give my own life in exchange for yours. Stop, listen, trust me. Eusebius says that hearing these words, the man stopped. He hurled away his weapons, threw them down, and began to tremble and weep bitterly, throwing himself at John's feet. Eusebius said that the young man came back to the Lord and left the mountains with John to return to a life of discipling. Here's my question. What would make an old man who's already could say, I, I've done it all. You know, okay, so this guy just took off. What would make him risk everything at his age to go up into the mountains to do what he did? Something happens, something has to happen in your life and my life to live with that kind of confidence, that kind of freedom, that kind of sacrifice, that kind of love for people. Here's my question to us today, before I even launch into this. Do we really, 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 really get it? In other words, if, if you're here today and you just came to church because we live in the South and this is what Southern people do and, you know, you've, you've kind of joined up and, you know, you feel like part of the obligation of being part of the club is that you have to go uh, on certain times and if you feel really guilty, you give some money and then do some other stuff. If, if you're just here, now I'm exaggerating, but if you're just here out of a religious obligation, then when an opportunity like this confronts you, you will never jump in. You'll never feel compelled because there's something else that has to change within us for that to occur. And I believe within this passage we're going to look at today, we'll see the key to why John could do such a thing. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Um, verses 28 and following. It says this, And now, dear children, continue in him. Remember, he has just talked to us, for those of you who missed last week, he just talked to us about the truth that Jesus is the Christ. And if we don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, then what we have is not a different form of Christianity, but we have something that's a totally different religion. It's not Christianity at all. That the only way we can be Christian is to know the truth 
that Jesus is God in the flesh and to hold on to that truth. And now he wants us to continue in that truth. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. This is the beginning of chapter 3. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has yet not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. There's a lot in this passage. So much so that I'm preaching the end of chapter 2 through the beginning of chapter 3. The next week, Scott's going to pick up and overlap on chapter 3. But this morning, what I want to talk to us is about the key distinction, the thing that will make you pursue God, his people, his destiny for you, and it's this. It's once you grasp the lavish love of God, how much he loves you. And so I want to talk about that this morning. The first point is this. Receiving love is a miracle. Receiving love is a miracle. See what great love the Father has. I'm going to kind of skip around in this passage. This is chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that's what we are. The King James Version says it like this. Behold, what manner of love is this? What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us? Behold. It's a declaration of amazement. You know, many times we lose the, the, the translation because we're going from Greek to English, and so we don't quite get it. And really where he says, what manner of love is this, is, a, is an idiomatic word in the Greek. You know, an idiom is, they're, they're the parts of speech that are really hard to teach people when they learn a new language. So when people learn English and you say it's raining cats and dogs, they, you, you understand? They don't understand. It's an idiom that we use to talk about how hard it is to rain. Now, I'm going to Haiti, and when I preach there, I'll be tra- someone will be translating for me. And one of the things that's tricky for me is, first of all, they don't necessarily get sarcasm, which really is really challenging because that's my primary form of communication. So it just doesn't translate. And they don't get idiomatic phrases. Uh, One of our friends who we've been overseas with many times is a guy named Don LeMaster. Don's in his 90s now, and he's not traveling anymore but because of his health. But he's from rural West Virginia. And so when he preaches, if you were here, he just uses phrases, even ones you've never heard before. So like one time he's preaching in Africa and he would say stuff like this. That's as hard as pushing a rope up a river. And the guy, the translator just kind of stopped and looked at him like, you can't push a rope up a river. <laughs> and he's, yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, he uses phrases like that. And that's what this is. This is like, uh, John is saying, behold, what kind of love is this? It's like from, a, it's like from another country. 
He's really saying, wow, this love is so unbelievable, it's like from another planet. He's trying to express his amazement at how this love that he's now received, that we should be called children of God. I don't know if we really, really get hold of this idea that God's love is a miracle. It's a miracle of God's grace that he loves us so much. When we lose sight of this truth, that love is a gift from God, then what we're left with is religion. We're left with legalism. I've said it before, where love is absent, law is all you have. And when we don't understand how much God has reached down and loves us, and has called us his children, we lose this amazement, then we, we start working on behalf of God. We think, oh, man, I've got to do my part. I've got to do what I've got to do. I've got to start praying more, reading the Bible more, going to church more. I've got to do more because love seems to be missing. In the early 1700s, there were two brothers who were part of a really, really large family their dad was a minister. Their mom was a godly, godly woman who prayed for her children. The boys went away to uh, study in Oxford. Uh, they were very religious guys. Uh, the younger of the two started a club, a, a religious club at Oxford, where people would come and they would, they would emphasize religious disciplines, prayer, fasting, seeking after God, they were, they were even singled out at Oxford because of their religious methods and their, their, their heart for, for God, but the way they just went after God. After he graduated from Oxford, uh, the older brother, who was like six years older than the younger, the older was more intense, more charismatic, the younger was more musical, a little more introspective, but it was the younger who actually started the club. But these two brothers went on a mission trip. They left England and came over to the colonies, America, specifically Georgia, to uh, share Jesus with the Native Americans, the Indians, as they would call them at that time, uh, with the Indians. And it was, it was a disaster. They had a horrible experience. I mean, everything went wrong. Now, when I go on a mission trip this Tuesday, I'm going to get on a plane that morning. I'll be in Haiti by 2 o'clock that afternoon. When you left England to go to Georgia for a mission trip back then, at, in the early 1700s, you, you were going on a mission trip. You were gone for, for a while. And on the boat on the way back, they, just, they were just depressed about how did they even know this God that they... The older brother said, I went to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? Very religious guys. They went back and they met a group of people who were passionate for Jesus, who, who loved God in a way that they had never experienced before. And one of them, one of the guys, when he was sharing with the younger brother, said to the younger brother, do you, do you know this Jesus? And he goes, I've worked very hard for him. I do everything right. And he said, no, no, no. Do you know him? Your works don't matter a flip. Now, I'm obviously helping the language along a little bit. And, he, and the younger brother said, if I don't have my works, what do I have? 
He felt imprisoned to his works. On Pentecost Sunday, suddenly his eyes were open. He understood what it meant to come to know faith. He was actually reading a commentary on Galatians. The younger brother was. And he came to know Jesus. In his journal, he wrote that the Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. The Spirit of God, he said, was like a light that shone in his room that night that chased away the spirit of unbelief. So on Pentecost Sunday, he came to know Jesus. Three days later, his older brother came to know Christ. And his older brother wrote in this famous phrase, in the evening when I went very unwillingly, because his brother dragged him, to a society to Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans about a quarter before nine when he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Those words, of course, were written by John Wesley. His younger brother, Charles Wesley, wrote some six to 7,000 hymns. The hymn he wrote within the first two weeks of coming to know Christ is one of my favorite hymn texts of all time. And it is called, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? And the first verse says this, And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? He's asking that question. Can I, can I be a part of my Savior's sacrifice? Did he for me who caused his pain, die, excuse me, died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? He answers his question, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He captures the miracle of the love of God in the sacrifice of Christ for you and me. You see, if we don't understand that love, all we get left with is law. All we got left with is religion. And that, my friends, is a dead end. It will lead you nowhere. It will not lead you to life. We need to grasp the miracle that God loved me. And if you don't grasp that miracle, look up here for just a second. If you don't grasp that miracle... You're going to be looking for love in all the wrong places, so to speak. You're going to be dying for people's approval. If someone doesn't look at you in the right way, you're going to start thinking, oh, they don't like me. Because you're looking for something that you can't get if you don't receive the miraculous truth that God loves you. John is trying to say, how lavish. Behold, what manner of love is this? That we should be called the children of children of God. Moving on, the second point is this. Receiving love shows us how to know God. Receiving love shows us how to know God. Looking at verses uh, 1 through 3, again, it says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, Now, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Look, I, this is the part where we, John is starting to get a little repetitive with some changes. He wants to say this, look, knowing about God is not the deal. Knowing the facts of God is not the Knowing God is what it's all about. And by knowing, he means in love with, an intimate relationship, receiving and reciprocating the love of God, understanding his love. When love moves from the realm of the mind to the heart, to the emotions, to the spirit, it leaves us standing astonished before God. It, me- it moves from just knowing to beholding. Last week we talked about some truths that you have to believe with your head. You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. There are core truths to Christianity, but John doesn't want to leave us there. John wants us to move into intimacy with God. And receiving God's love is really where we learn how to know God. One of my favorite books is, uh, and favorite authors really, is a guy by the name of Ken Geyer. Uh, A number of years ago, he wrote a book called Windows of the Soul. Windows of the Soul, where he he basically shares that uh, there are windows in our life that we look out through that kind of the the light of God shines through and touches our soul. And for different people, it could be different windows. For some people, it could be nature. For some people, art. For some people, dance or music or movies or literature. But God speaks through these windows that touch our life. And I, I, I don't usually read a lengthy section of a book, but I want to read kind of his intro to, um, to this book uh, just to, to show you what he's talking about, how the love of God helps us know God better. He says, the pursuit of self is what most of us have been doing for much of our lives, even our spiritual lives. Get that if you don't get anything. Most of us pursue ourselves. That's who we are. Here's what he says, though. But the self is a cul-de-sac, and eventually we end up where we started. Foot sore and just as frustrated, just as unfulfilled. Feeling we're a failure or worse, a fraud. The pursuit of soul... If soul is all we're pursuing, it's not much different. It's a longer walk down a nicer street, but the street is still a cul-de-sac. And in the end, regardless how invigorating the walk, it doesn't lead beyond the neighborhood of who we are. Most of us, though, have grown a little tired of the neighborhood and all the back and forth trips we've taken there. We long for something more than a routine walk around the religious block. Can I get an amen? We long for the companionship of God. We long for the assurance that we are not taking this journey alone, that he is walking with us and talking with us and intimately involved in our lives. We have all had moments when we've experienced something of that intimacy, moments we can't quite explain yet can't explain away, moments when God has touched our lives like a soft hand of morning sun reaching through our bedroom window brushing over our eyes and waking us up to something eternal. At some of these windows, what we see offers simply a moment of insight, making us slower to judge and quicker to show understanding. At a few of them, though, 
What we see offers a word spoken to the very depths of who we are. It may be a word to rouse us from sleep and ready us for life's journey. It may be a word to warn us of a precipice or guide us to a place of rest. It may be a word telling us who we are and why we are here and what is required of us at this particular juncture of our journey. Or, in a startling, sun-drenched moment of grace, it may be a word telling us something we have all longed all of our lives to hear, a word from God. A word so precious it would be worth the most arduous of climbs to hear the least audible of its echoes. Windows of the soul is where we hear those words and where the journey begins. God cares about us. He loves us. He wants to speak to us through the Spirit of God who indwells us. It's when we receive the love of God that we really get out of the neighborhood of ourself and learn to know God better. Third point this. Receiving love and righteousness go hand in hand. Receiving love and righteousness go hand in hand. Looking back at the end of chapter 2, verses 28 and following, he says this, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. The way he phrases this is really strange. We would probably say, and he has said it before in this, everyone who's born of him does right. But look at the way he words this. He says, everyone who is righteous has been, what, born of him. Now, doesn't that seem a strange way to phrase it in a way? I mean, let's face it. There are many people out there who are not righteous, who are not Christians, who are not followers of Christ, who actually probably live better lives morally than many of us. I mean, we know a lot of good people who you would say, well, they're they're not Christians, they're not righteous. I mean, listen, the truth about me is, is kind of summed up in this cartoon, which says, where he says, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like the person, uh, I, here's what he says. I'm sorry, I'm reading my own notes, except I can't read them. Let me get my glasses out again. It says this, some days <laughs> my biggest accomplishment is just keeping my mouth shut. Do some of you feel like that, where your biggest accomplishment on certain days is just keeping your mouth shut? Thank you, Mr. Buddy. John, John is reminding us of something very important. That in the fullest sense of the word, we can never really live a righteous life apart from Christ. I mean, <clears throat> think about just this. <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, don't kill. All right, I'm not going to, I won't kill. But then he takes it a step further and says, hey, you shouldn't curse your brother. You shouldn't curse, speak a curse on others, nor should you hate them in your heart. That if you do that, you're same sin as killing them. Well, it seems like a big difference to me. Killing someone versus just yelling at the driver next to me. Hey, man, 
Somebody? John, John wants us to know that really righteousness is not simply about what we do on the exterior, but it's about our very heart. That the only way to live a righteous life is to be thoroughly consistent inwardly and outwardly. You see, this is again where John is bringing those characteristics of love and righteousness together in the character of God. Many people want to limit God to say God is just a God of love. Or some, on the other hand, say God is just a God of holiness. Or God is just a God of power where they try to exalt one characteristic of God over another. But God is these things. He is all of these. He is love. He is righteousness. And when we receive his love, we also receive his righteousness. Real righteousness is a complete union of our hearts and our wills so that we don't live hypocritical lives. When we receive the love of God, we receive the spiritual DNA that allows us to be different, to change who we are. The power of God indwells us. Listen, I I love the power of God. I, I would love to see the power of God more manifestly present, even in our midst where people are healed and great things happen and You know, they're just the miraculous. But let me tell you this. The greatest miracle of all is that you were dead in sin and now you're alive in Jesus. I mean, nothing goes beyond that. I mean, nothing surpasses that. And as a matter of fact, the miraculous to me are signs that point people to say, you can be made alive. And when you're made alive, you no longer have the spirit, the the DNA of your fallen self, but you've received the spiritual DNA of the God who indwells you. His love fills you to overflowing. Now you are righteousness. Everyone who is righteous is born of God because that's the only way we can be right. You see, Charles Wesley's biggest deal was he couldn't get over himself. He couldn't get past, I'm doing everything right. Hello? I mean, my biggest fear is not really for, I mean, I'm a, I fear for those who don't know Christ, who are living sinful lives, but my real fear is for those who are trying to live a good life in order to please God, yet imprisoned to it. Because they think by doing that, living a good life, that they'll get in a better position with God. It's just a, it's a prison. It is being chained up to your own good works. And we never get set free from that. Being right in God's sight comes through faith in Jesus Christ. A realization that he sets us free. To me, these are some of the most powerful words in any hymn. This is the fourth verse of that same hymn, And Can It Be? Here's what Wesley said. This is just two weeks after his conversion. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Again, he was trying to do all the right stuff, but he was bound in prison. And then he says in this great turn of the phrase, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. In other words, he sees the eyes of God, and from the eyes of God comes a light that pierces the darkness, 
And, and in his prison, it's, the darkness is cast away and the light of God is present. And then he says, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? So he receives the truth of God through faith in Christ. His chains fell off. What is his response? I rose, went forth, and I followed him. I mean, here's a guy who was so disciplined in his college days that he starts a club to get other people to get in spiritual disciplines. They get ridiculed, and their, 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 their name, Methods, becomes the name of their religion, Methodist. But he's not even saved. He's ordained in the ministry. He goes on a mission trip. He does a lot of stuff, but it wasn't until he received the truth of God's lavish love in his life that he was changed forever. We've got to understand we are recipients of the miraculous love of God that loves each other, all of us, that we could be called children of God. Being a recipient of God's love allows us to really know God as our Father. Being a recipient of God's love leads us to living right and loving right. My chains fell off. My heart was free. Wouldn't you like to be there if you're not? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be. Where our chains are off, our hearts are free. To do what? To rise up. I rose and follow thee. Lord, we pray this morning that you would move mightily in our midst today. Doing what you desire to do. Lord, as we come to a time where we pray for one another, I pray that the power of God to minister love in this place would be manifest. That if we don't understand your love that heals, that sets free, that lifts burdens, that it would be here today. That, God, just let the miracle of love be manifest in our midst this morning. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to ask our ministry teams to come to the front right now. And they're going to they're gonna pray for you. If you're here today and you need a prayer for healing, you need prayer for direction, you need prayer for freedom, you need a prayer where you just say, you know, I just need a fresh touch of the love of God in my life. I want to experience this miracle of God's love through Jesus Christ. Then allow these ministry teams to pray with you. Um, if these teams fill up, don't worry. Other teams are going to come forward. Uh, and pray. And while they're praying, I'm going to put, uh, we're going to listen and watch just a new setting of this great hymn that we've been looking at. And so let's worship or receive prayer in the moments. Hey, if you need prayer, just get up, come on down, and let, um, let the love of God be manifest in your life.